Any Game of Thrones fans here this morning? Well, if you're a fan of Game of Thrones, as a few of you are, you know about the Night's Watch. Night's Watch is a group of soldiers sworn to protect the seven kingdoms from the wildlings and the white walkers of the north. The watch stands guard along the wall, which is an ancient 300-mile-long bulwark of ice and rock built and held together by magic that rises some 900 feet tall in some places. Now, the Night's Watch, serious business. They know that they are the first line of defense against the dark creatures of the north who we find in the series are stirring. As you might have heard, winter is coming. Every member of the watch swears an inviolable oath at their induction, which they dare not break but by pain of death. As Jon Snow himself swore in that clip, hear my words, bear witness to my vow. Night gathers, and now my watch begins. It shall not end until my death. I shall take no wife, hold no lands, father no children. I shall wear no crowns and win no glory. I shall live and die at my post. I am the sword in the darkness. I am the watcher on the walls. I am the shield that guards the realms of men. I pledge my life and honor to the night's watch for this night and all the nights to come. In the Old Testament book of Isaiah, we meet another watcher on the walls. He also took a solemn oath to guard and protect his people from the evil coming their way. He took to his job seriously. He lived and died at his post, but the people didn't listen to him. And when their winter came, the people were divided and destroyed. We meet this watchman in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Isaiah was a prophet sent by God to the nations of Judah and Israel in the 8th century before Jesus. God's people had been misbehaving in some terrible ways for a very, very, very long time. So the Lord decides to send one final prophet to warn his people of their coming destruction. Now, as we've seen, the book of Isaiah is a big, long, and complicated book, so we've decided to break it up into mini-series, many, mini-series. And during this mini-series called Man on Fire, we're considering Isaiah himself as a prophet. Who was he? How did he become a prophet? What does it even mean to be a prophet? And one of the things it means to be a prophet is to be a watcher on the wall. Isaiah, as it were, was a member of the Night's Watch. All prophets are. They are charged by God to warn us of what's coming, and we ignore them, as we do, at our peril. To illustrate this, let me share with you a passage from Isaiah chapter 21, which we'll study together this morning. I'll read to you from verses 1 through 10, Isaiah 21, verses 1 through 10. A prophecy against the desert by the sea. Like whirlwinds sweeping through the Southland, an invader comes from the desert, from a land of terror. A dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor betrays, the looter takes loot, Elam attack, Medea lays siege. I will bring an end all to all the groaning she caused. At this, my body is wrecked with pain. Pangs seize me like those of a woman in labor. I am staggered by what I hear. I'm bewildered by what I see. My heart falters. Fear makes me tremble. The twilight I long for has become a horror to me. They set the tables. They spread the rugs. They eat. They drink. Get up, you officers. Oil the shields. This is what the Lord says to me. Go. 
set a watchman and have him report what he sees. When he sees chariots with teams of horses, riders on donkeys or riders on camels, let him be alert, fully alert. And the watchman shouted, day after day, my lord, I stand on the watchtower. Every night I stay at my post. Look, here comes a man in a chariot with a team of horses. And he gives back the answer. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. My people who are crushed on the threshing floor, I tell you what I have heard from the Lord Almighty, from the God of Israel. Now, this passage is not directly about Isaiah's people, the nation of Judah. It's actually about another nation, the nation of Babylon. Babylon is here referred to as the desert by the sea. And in this prophecy against Babylon, the prophet foresees the destruction of that nation at the hands of the Assyrians. Now, Assyria, if you remember, is the mean, nasty kid on the block these days. Eventually, Babylon, for its part, would like wipe out Assyria. But at this particular moment in Israel's history, Assyria wipes out Babylon. The Assyrians are a vile, vulgar, violent nation who plunder and pillage their way through the land, plucking off nations one by one. And this includes, at this point in history, Babylon. As Isaiah writes, like whirlwinds sweeping through the Southland, an invader comes from the desert, from a land of terror. A dire vision has been shown to me. The traitor betrays, the looter takes loot. Assyria is on the prowl, basically. And sure enough, Babylon is wiped up. Babylon has fallen, has fallen, he says. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. Now, why would Isaiah care so much about the destruction of a foreign nation like Babylon? That's us like that's like us being, getting all worked up on the destruction of Bolivia. I mean, no offense to Bolivia. Well, he gets so worked up here because he knows of what, the, what the fall of Babylon portends. He knows that his people could be next. At this, my body is racked with pain, he says. Pangs seize me like those of a woman in labor. If Assyria can destroy the mighty Babylon, they can have their way with us, he knows. It's probably how, let's say, France felt when Germany invaded Poland. Uh-oh, who's next? Now, the reason I chose this passage for you this morning, though, isn't because of the military or the international or political developments, but because of the imagery used, which you've probably picked up already. Here in these passages, God calls Isaiah to be a watchman. A what? A watchman. Some translations say a lookout. That's what God says. Go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. And Isaiah takes up the post. Day after day, my Lord, I stand on the watchtower. Every night I stay at my post. The prophet is a watchman. He's a member of the night's watch. Now, of course, this is a metaphor. And what I mean is that God didn't actually appoint the prophet to go be a watchman standing guard on an actual wall. But it was an image that Isaiah would have understood back then. War was always in the air. Enemy nations roamed about. Cities were built with walls and fortifications. They had to build towers to see out over the horizon. And the towers had to be manned with a lookout. And a watchman was a military post to warn the city of danger. But here God makes this military post a prophetic post. A religious post. God says, in effect, Isaiah, you be my watchman. You look out 
over the horizon to see what I will show you, to see the carnage and the devastation that Assyria is bringing upon your enemies, then sound the warning that what happened there is next going to happen here because of the people's sin. What's even more interesting to note there is that the idea of the prophet as a watchman is not unique to Isaiah. The most famous watchman prophet in the Bible is actually a different prophet by the name of Ezekiel. The Lord calls Ezekiel even more explicitly as a watchman than he does Isaiah. Son of man, God says to Ezekiel, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel, so hear the word I speak and give them warning from me. The Old Testament is filled with prophets who belonged to the Night's Watch, who had sworn the oath to live and die at their post. And this was no posh job for Isaiah or Ezekiel either. It wasn't an easy assignment. Nobody in the prophet's guild signed up to be a watchman. In choosing his prophets as watchmen, God was looking for a certain kind of man who could execute his duties. Watchmen had to be alert, for example. You didn't want your watchman falling asleep. As the Lord says to Isaiah in his instruction, let him be alert, fully alert, can't miss nothing. And watchmen had to be long-serving. They knew they had to be vigilant over long periods of time. Day after day, my Lord, I stand on the watchtower. Every night I stay at my post. Watchmen can't let his guard down ever. Also, God needed his watchmen to be courageous. A watchman had to announce what he saw was coming no matter what. If a watchman saw danger and didn't say anything to the people about the danger because he was afraid of maybe how they were going to react, he'd be in trouble. To Ezekiel, God says, Son of man, I have made you a watchman for the house of Israel, so hear the word I speak, give them warning from me. When I say to the wicked, O wicked man, you will surely die, and you do not speak out to dissuade him from his ways... That wicked man will die for his sin and their blood will be on your hands. But if you do warn the wicked man to turn from his ways and he does not do so, he will die for his sin, but you will have saved yourself. So basically, if I appoint you as my watchman and you see something coming and you don't say something because you're scared of how the people are going to react, I'm going to hold you accountable for their death. Their blood be on your hands, but... If you announce what I give you to announce, and the people do not repent, they will die for their sins, but you will have saved yourself. This is actually usually how it plays out in the Old Testament, by the way. The prophets give warning, and the people ignore them. Even here in Isaiah 21, the prophet cannot believe the nation's apathy and indifference to his warnings. Isaiah knows what's coming. It fills him with dread, and he tries to warn the people, but the people don't listen. As he writes... My heart falters, fear makes me tremble. The twilight I long for has become a horror to me, yet they set the tables, they spread the rugs, they eat, they drink. Get up, you officers, oil the shields. In other words, I'm warning you about your coming doom, and you're getting ready for dinner. You're setting the tables and spreading the rugs. Oil the shields, men, get yourselves ready. If you're going to die... Your blood be on your own hands. So there is a life or death seriousness in the role of watchmen in the Old Testament. It's as serious as the night's watch. Now, why is this all important? Maybe you find this to be an interesting theme in the Bible that you did not know was there. Maybe, so far, you could care less. 
Why is it important? Well, it's important for lots of reasons. But one of the reasons it's important is because Jesus, in the New Testament, picks up the theme. You see, Jesus came to earth not just as the Son of God who died for our sins and rose again from the dead. Jesus also came to earth as a prophet, as a watchman, warning us of dangers to come. One of Jesus' most frequent commands to his people in the Gospels is a simple one. He tells us to watch. As he tells us in Luke 21, be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. What he most wanted from his people was watchfulness. On the night of his death, when he was praying for strength to die on the cross, he needed his disciples to stay awake with him, to warn him of Romans who were coming to get him, but they couldn't. They just kept falling asleep. So what does he tell them? Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? Jesus was a watchman, recruiting people to the night's watch. And like Isaiah and Ezekiel, Jesus knew that we live in a dangerous world with enemies about. Enemies we need to watch out for. Not enemies like Assyria, not enemies like Babylon, not even enemies like Russia or China or the Democrats or the Republicans. Worse enemies. Enemies that can infiltrate our souls. Enemies that can destroy our churches and families. These are the enemies that we underestimate and ignore at our peril. What enemies? Well, Jesus does not leave us guessing here. Let me mention three enemies that Jesus and his disciples warn us to watch out for. Enemies like, for example, greed. As Jesus says in the Gospel of Luke, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If you read the life of Jesus, you'll quickly learn that Jesus regards greed as one of the most devastating enemies out there. It corrupts the soul. Jesus doesn't talk about homosexuality. Jesus doesn't talk about transgenderism or other sins that we like to talk about these days. But Jesus talks about greed and materialism a lot. And he talked about it like Isaiah talked about Assyria. Greed is coming. Greed is out there. It should terrify us. As Isaiah writes, it should make our hearts falter and seize us like birth pangs seize a woman. But many of us are completely fine being greedy materialists. Yeah. We're completely fine buying lots of stuff we don't need while we let the hungry die of starvation. We're completely fine making renovations to our house but not tithing to God's house and letting it fall into disrepair. We don't see greed and materialism as the terrifying threat that Jesus saw it to be. We practically embrace greed with our purchases and spending and coveting. Greed marches up to the door of our castle, and what do we do? We open it up. Oh, hello, greed. Welcome into my life. What other enemies does Jesus warn us against? Enemies like false leaders. As Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. And as he says later, watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ, and he will deceive many. 
Uh, Jesus knows that we can be vulnerable, impressionable people and can be easily led astray by people who claim to be from God or claim to know things we don't know. We follow these people at our peril. They can lead us straight to hell. I just finished reading a book that I wrote up on my website called The Road to Jonestown. It's about the cult leader, Jim Jones, uh, who led over 900 people in a mass suicide in the late 1970s. Uh, While reading this, I marveled at how so many intelligent people could let themselves be led to move to Guyana and then drink poison, which is how they killed themselves, together. How could that happen? But we really can be that gullible and impressionable, and leaders really can be that conniving. We need to watch out that nobody leads us away from goodness and life and truth, because people will try, and they can be very good at it. Some of our favorite religious leaders lead us astray into their personality cults all the time. Some of our favorite politicians are, frankly, cult leaders who use manipulation to secure our votes and support. Jesus is here telling us to be careful who we follow. If anybody here on earth ever promises you way too much, you should be deeply suspicious of them. You should be watchful. If anybody ever tells you that they know when Jesus is going to return because they've seen secrets in the Bible that nobody else has seen, you need to run away from them as fast as you can. If I, for that matter, if I ever use deceit and manipulation to keep you subservient to my will, you should get away from me as fast as you can. If I ever turn into a false teacher, don't worry about saying goodbye. Just abandon me and tell your friends. As our watchman, Jesus warns us about greed and false leaders. The Apostle Paul One of Jesus' followers tells us to watch out for another third enemy, division. As Paul warns in Galatians, if you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out. Or you will be destroyed by each other. You'll be destroyed by each other. The irony. And as he warns in Romans, watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned, just let's be clear, keep away from them. As much as we need to be on the lookout against greed and false leaders, we also need to guard against the division that such leaders cause, and this includes the devil, by the way. I've become convinced that the devil's preferred way to destroy the work of God is to incite God's people against each other, and he is an expert at it. The devil is. The devil is an expert at inciting gossip and turning simple misunderstandings into full-fledged relational battles. That's why this particular moment, this particular historic cultural moment for the Christian church is such an important one. Christians are so divided these days. We're divided over masks. We're divided over social distancing. We're divided over politics. We're divided over racism. In some cases, we've let ourselves be divided by leaders and politicians who seek to divide us for their own political purposes. Now, I'm not saying we're not allowed to disagree with each other or even divide each other according to our convictions, but every disagreement between Christians must be covered, bathed in a spirit of gentleness, generosity, humility, 
love and grace. And we need to take the Bible's warnings about division more seriously than we do. The devil knows that our strength in preaching the gospel to the world, the gospel of God's love seen in Jesus Christ, hinges on our ability to stay unified and love each other. He knows that the world will never believe us as we talk about God's love if the world sees us not being able to love each other. Which is why Jesus says, watch out, don't let the devil do that. So, Assyria, long gone. Babylon, long gone. Isaiah himself rests peacefully in the grave. But it is still a dangerous world. God's people are still in jeopardy. We need watchmen on the walls to warn us that our enemies are coming. Enemies like greed, like false leaders, like division. And we ignore these enemies at our peril. Along those lines, I wonder if you're taking the Assyrian threat seriously. Are you listening to the prophet's warning about the enemies heading our way? Enemies like greed and false leaders and division. Or are you busy eating your dinner? Are you busy watching your Netflix? When you should be oiling the shields. Before we wrap up for the morning, let me uh, share with you a quick story. It's a personal story that some of you might know, but it's a good one, so you get to hear it again. Yay! Uh, One of the reasons I really like this image of Isaiah as a watchman on a watchtower is because it's, it's actually very meaningful to me in a uh, surprising way. You see, 15 years ago, my wife Michelle and I decided to adopt a baby from Guatemala. It was a long, arduous, yet exciting process. The baby we adopted, who is now our 13-year-old daughter, was very young when she got placed with us. She was only a month old or so. It would take six more months of travel down there to finalize the adoption, but our adoption coordinator said that she was young enough that if we wanted to change her name, we could. Her birth name was Daniela, which is pretty, but uh, we have this weird thing with the letter M in our family. Matt, Michelle, Mitchell, Maxwell, Daniela. So we researched lots of Hispanic M names that might fit. Maria, Mirabella, Marisol, but nothing really fit, so we decided to pray about it and let the name come to us. At about the same time, on a separate track, I was at a Bob Dylan concert down at the Fox. (laughs) Uh, Dylan did his famous song all along the Watchtower. You might know that song or Jimi Hendrix's version of it. Um, I actually never heard the song before. I had heard of it, but never heard the song. So I noted it, and I decided to look it up when I got home. It's a mysterious song with some very curious lyrics, and musicologists love to argue over the meaning of the song, but the lyrics seem to be based, seem to be based on this passage in Isaiah 21 of the prophet as a watchman on a watchtower. Hmm. A few days later, I was actually preparing a sermon on a passage in the book of Acts when the apostle Paul is rejected by the people of Corinth. They don't actually listen to his message. They choose to try to kill him. So he announces to them, well, then your blood be on your own hands, people of Corinth. That's a quotation from the Watchtower passage in Ezekiel. Hmm. A few days after that, I was talking to a a pastor friend of mine in North Carolina who was having just a little bit of a rough go of it and offhandedly said that he just felt, despite all his troubles, felt called by God to be faithful, called by God to be, I don't know, 
watchmen on a watchtower. The watchtower references just kept piling up. Now, I can be a fairly dense man, but this was too obvious for me to miss, but I didn't know what to do with it. I actually prayed, God, if you are trying to convey something to me, I'm going to need you to be a bit more clear because you may have forgotten that I can be a bit daft. And God said, no, I have not forgotten that you can be a bit daft. <laughs> I'm well aware of your daftness. So eventually, back to adoption, our adoption coordinator uh, told us that we needed to pick a name for our daughter. And she was traveling down to sign some documents and needed to know what name to put on said documents. Uh, so Michelle and I, we just decided to sit down at the computer one night. We went to, I don't know, hispanicmnames.com or something, and we scrolled through the options. Mercedes, Mariposa, Mariah. Then we saw the name Miranda. Thought, I like that name. I've thought about that name. Do you like Miranda? She said, I like that name too. Kind of works with Herndon. Miranda, Herndon. We agreed we both kind of liked the name. On this particular website, you can click on the name to learn its meaning. So we clicked. Name means watchtower. Comes from the verb mirar, meaning to watch, to view. That's what you do from watchtower. I actually sat there at the computer screen and cussed. <laughs> Holy shoot, it means watchtower, I said, although I didn't say that. Michelle was not surprised by my cussing, that happens at our house, but did wonder about its timing. That's a curious response to a website. I told her that for weeks I'd been running into references in the Bible about watchtowers. She said, that's crazy. So right then and there, we'd named her Miranda, although we didn't really, we didn't really name her Miranda. She had been named Miranda. We were just sort of recognizing the name she had been given. Now, Honestly, I'm still wrestling with the meaning of this event. Who's the watchman? Is Miranda my watchman on a watchtower? <laughs> Is she my warning? She can be a very serious child, you know. She's always telling me, your blood be on your own hands, Daddy. I'm done with you. She's not really saying that. Is Michelle the watchman? <laughs> She's a medical professional with lots of expertise about public health problems. If you know Michelle, you know she has a lot to say. Ignore her at your peril. Or am I the watchman? I mean, I'm the preacher. I've got the pulpit. At least this morning, I'm the one issuing the warning for you. What warning? Babylon has fallen. All the images of its gods lie shattered on the ground. Babylon has fallen. Assyria has done this. Assyria tore the mighty Babylon to shreds. And Assyria is coming for us. No, 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 no. Not Assyria. Threats worse than Assyria. Threats worse than Russia, than China, than the coronavirus. Threats worse than the white walkers to the north. Threats that can corrupt your souls eternally and destroy the work of God. Threats like greed that make you think you need anything other than the grace of God. Threats like false leaders who lead us astray to hell without us even knowing it. Threats like division that corrupt the integrity of our witness and compromise our ability to love each other and show the world the love of God. These threats are real. They can tear us apart. I'm telling you from my watchtower, they can tear us apart and they're coming. They're coming for every single one of us. What are you going to do? Are you going to repent? You're going to ask for forgiveness, which can be yours in Jesus Christ. 
You're going to pray to be delivered from your sin, which can happen by the power of the Holy Spirit. You're going to get your soul right with God. You're going to oil your shields. Or you're going to set the table. You're going to lay your rugs. You're going to go home and watch your Netflix. If so, that's your choice. But your blood be on your own hands. Doesn't have to be that way, though. There's still time to heed the warning. Because it's not all bad news that's coming. You see, I should point out here before we close that it's not all bad news that Watchmen announced. It was a prophet's job to warn people of enemies, threats, yes, but it was also a prophet's job to announce good news too. Even as dour as Isaiah was, he had good news for his people, good news of salvation and hope. He knew that even with Assyria about, God's people could still be saved. He knew that God's people would be saved. And he looked forward to announcing that news too. That if you wait long enough, you're going to see the salvation, the day of salvation of the Lord. As he writes in chapter 52, listen, you watchmen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, the watchmen will see it with their own eyes. Burst into songs together, you ruins in Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. Your watchmen lift up their voices, he writes. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes. Sometimes what a watchman sees on the horizon is bad news. It is ominous. Babylon has fallen, but sometimes it is good news. Isaiah sees good news here. As he says later in chapter 21, the watchman says, morning is coming. But also the night. The night has to come. Assyria has to come. We have to suffer. Babylon has to fall. Our sins have been too great. But thereafter, morning will come. The Lord will return, riding over the horizon with banner unfurled. Jesus will come back to rid the world of evil. Jesus will come back to judge the sinners and the righteous alike. The Lord will return to purge our souls once and for all of sin and addiction and renew the earth in glory. When the Lord returns, we will all see it. We will all see it with our own eyes. We will see the night end. We will see the morning dawn. We will see it. We wait for it. We suffer through the night. We wait for the morning. But until then, we must be, be vigilant. We must be watchful. We must listen to the watcher on the wall. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for stern warnings. The things that we deal with in life are not just things that we have to get through. They are enemies that can lead us to hell. Greed, lust, division, divisiveness, worldliness. Those can corrupt us. We thank you for prophets who warn us of things that we don't want to hear. That if we do not repent and believe and entrust our souls to you, that we will uh, suffer in hell forever. 
but we also thank you for prophets like Isaiah who alerted us to good news too, that you love us too much to give up on us like that. You warn us because you love us. And you've also made a way for us to be freed and redeemed from sin and fear. That way was Jesus Christ. He came to earth, died on a cross for our sins and rose from the dead. By the power of his Holy Spirit inside of us, we can live lives of hope, holiness, joy, truth. I pray that we here at Rooftop, I mean, we're named Rooftop because we stand on top of things and we shout them. The city of St. Louis needs to be warned at the top of our lungs that Babylon has fallen and we're next. Every single one of us is going to die. That's a fact. Death is our enemy. Sin is our enemy. We're all going to die. We're all under its thumb. But there can be hope in the coming of Jesus Christ. If we wait for it, trust in it, pray for it. Help us be vigilant here at Rooftop. Help us be bold to preach the word, regardless of how people regard us, think of us. Help us be faithful, watchmen on a wall. We are the night's watch. Help us live and die at our post. While I'm praying, Father, I do want to pray a special prayer for our country this week. It's going to be a consequential one. I do not pretend to know your will on the fates of the nations, but I do know that you expect and demand that your people be agents of peace and civility and love and prayerfulness. So we pray for America. That people use this week as an opportunity to trust in you as our leader, no matter how imperfect a leader we elect. Jesus Christ is our Savior, who alone will never let us down. Pray these things in your name. We also close our prayer time this morning, Father, by reciting together the words of the Apostles' Creed, words which we pray together the first week of every month, words that remind us what we believe and who we are, words that will appear on the screen for those who need them. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. On the third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, from whence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.